I'd like for you to turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16:13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who, who do you say that I am? The most important question that can ever be posed and the most important question that can ever be answered is that question right there. Who do you say that I am? Your answer to that question determines whether you will be in heaven or whether you will be in hell. Does that sound shocking? How you answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is, determines your eternal destiny. And it's interesting that Jesus turned to each one of His disciples. So it's not enough just to say, what do other people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? So turn now to the book of Colossians. And as you're turning there, how would you answer that question? Don't say it out loud, but just to yourself. Who do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Some people say that he's, he was a great teacher. Was he a great teacher? Absolutely. A master teacher. Some say that he was a prophet. Was he a prophet? Yeah, in a sense, yeah. He fulfilled all three roles, prophet, priest, and king. Some say that he was just a, a good moral man. Was he a good moral man? Absolutely. So, where's the problem? Well, the problem comes in not just what we affirm in terms of um, those kinds of things, but do we go far enough? Do, do, do we, in fact, affirm all that the Bible... And let me rephrase that. Do we affirm all that Jesus Himself has told us who He is? Because quite frankly, in, a, in another sense, that question is almost irrelevant. It doesn't really matter who you say He is. There is an objective reality of who Jesus is. And how you answer that certainly will determine your destiny and my destiny. But there is a sense in which objectively, Jesus is who He claims to be, regardless of if not any one person ever accepted it or believed that He would still be who He claims to be. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And I'd like to read the whole text, and then we'll go back and, and kind of look at, a, uh, look at it a little bit at a time. He is the image of the invisible God. And, and, and the He there is provided by most of our translations. It's really a, it's who, going back to verse 13, talking about His beloved Son, who... Whom is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. 
And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, the, The outline this morning is really simple. The first point is, he is... That's it. He is. If, if you look with me, beginning in verse 15, you see this phrase repeated starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 18, or verse 17. He is before all things. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Uh, the, the first section is basically talking about who he is. The the second section, the second part of the outline, just two points. The second point is he has. So so even if you're not taking notes mentally, he is and he has. It's very simple. Look at verse 21. You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has. Now reconciled. So it shifts. It shifts from he is to he has. So I take that to mean that, that this text is telling us two things. Who he is and what he did. So, in a sense, if, if someone were to ask you, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Verses 15 through 20 are not a bad place to go. He is. Who is he? First of all, he is preeminent over physical creation. He is preeminent over physical creation. Look with me again at verse 15. He is the image of the, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, two things there. It says he is the image of the invisible God. This word image is icon. We get the word icon from it. It's acon. And, and what's an icon? Yes, it's a physical representation of something or someone. Uh, Jesus is saying, and isn't this interesting? It's something that's visible that represents something Invisible. How can you have something represent something that you can't see? This is part of the mystery of the Godhead. That how can a physical being represent a being that has no physical form? God the Father has no physical form. God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. He has no physical form. So in what sense does Jesus in his physical form, represent the Father. That, that's part of the mystery of the Godhead. But we certainly can say he represents the Father certainly in his essence, in his being. So, remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Again, he's not saying that the Father has a physical, corporeal form. He's saying that me, in, in all of my essence, and who I am and what I'm like, I represent the Father. So it's not enough to say Jesus... A lot of people say, well, Jesus was the Son of God. And if you ask them, what does that mean, Son of God? They, they probably have in their mind a being that, is in, that although is great... He is still inferior to the Father. Jesus was in no way inferior to the Father. He was fully man and fully God. So when we say he is the image of the invisible God, he's saying he's fully deity. He's fully God. And number two, he was firstborn of all creation. This is what we call a genitive. Danny, you always bail me. I appreciate that because no one else, they're just clueless on genitives here. We do it every single Sunday, and no one ever says it. Firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Many of our translations translate it as over. Uh, what are the options of firstborn of creation? It could be something that creation created. He is the firstborn of creation. Creation created him. Or, what? The reverse. Creation is a result of him. And, and, and this is the classic passage that Jehovah's Witnesses go to. And by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, are modern-day Arians. A-R-I-A-N-S. Arian. Arius. Um, boy, I wish we could talk about church history. Um, Athanasius, humanly speaking, saved the Christian faith from Arius's teaching. Arius's teaching was sweeping through the third, fourth century church. They were denying, Arius denied the deity of Christ. The Arians taught that Jesus was the first one that God created. God created the Son, and then the Son created everything else. And they go to this passage to prove that, or to try to prove that. See, he was the firstborn of all creation. So of all the things that were created, he was created first, because it says firstborn, and then he created everything else. That's, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. The, 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 those of you in home group should have gotten, I think you got a chart of Christological heresies, remember? And there were two, there were two primary heresies. First John is dealing with one Christological heresy called Docetism. And the Docetists believe that Jesus... Um, was fully God, or that he was God, he was spirit, but he wasn't man. He wasn't human. He wasn't real flesh. There was no flesh and blood. He just appeared to be in flesh and blood. That's what the Docetists believe. So you have the Docetists over here who, who accepted his deity in the sense that they believed he was spirit, but they didn't believe he, they denied his humanity. And then you had the Arians way over here on the other side, and they bought into his humanity, but they denied his full deity. And then you have all different kinds of heresies in between. Colossians is going to be dealing primarily with the Arian uh, uh, Christological heresy of a denial of his deity. First John is dealing, John and First John is primarily dealing with the, her, the Christological heresy of denying his humanity. This is what we call a, what we would call a genitive of subordination. That creation was subordinate to the, to the Son. And, and, and the way we know that is the word firstborn. Uh, this is, there, there is a separate word that means first created. Prototokos 
is first created. If, if this passage was teaching indeed what the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Arians say that it teaches, we would expect to find prototokos. That, 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 that he was first created. But it, that's not the word. What's the word? Look at it again. What is it? Firstborn. Firstborn is, has nothing to do with creation. It has everything to do with priority. Who is the firstborn? When we said the firstborn, it's not necessarily talking about the one who was born first. Uh, we, we have an, an incident, uh, I can't remember right offhand which one it was, but it was the, he was the second born and God declared him the firstborn son. Jacob. Or was it Jacob? <laughs> Whatever. One of those in that family. But the point is, is that the word firstborn does not mean first created. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with it has nothing to do with chronology or when one was born. It has everything to do with authority or priority. So he is the one who is prior in authority over creation. He is firstborn over creation. He is preeminent in his creation. And he goes on for verse sixteen. For now we see three prep, we're going to see three prepositional phrases explaining his, the, the fact that he was firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers authority. All things were created through him and for him. So we have three prepositional phrases. The first one is in him, and then through him, and then for him. And all of these are very significant. The first one is, by him. Now, um, really, this should be in. Uh, the, the ESV, the preposition in, in Greek, is very flexible. It can be in or by. I take this, I think they should have left this as in. In him, in the sphere of him, in the realm of Jesus, all things were created. What, what does it mean by that? In philosophical language, there's this concept called first cause. Anybody know what first cause means? Yeah, if you, were to, if you were to believe A existed, why do you believe A existed? Well, because of B. Well, why B? Because of C. Why C? Because of D. That, at, at some point, you, have an, you can't have an infinite regression. At some point, there has to be the uncreated beginning. Now, what do atheists and secularists believe that the uncreated beginning is or was? Big Bang. Which begs the question, though, where did all the stuff come from that went bang? So everybody, you need to understand this. In terms of rational thought, everybody has a first cause. Everybody has a, a concept of that there has to be an un, there has to be a beginning that was uncaused at some point, or you have an infinite regression. If you walk into someone's house and you see a chandelier and you see a thing going all the way up, you can't see the ceiling, what do you have to assume, though? At some point, it's attached. You don't have an infinite chain. There are some high ceilings. Yeah, those are some high ceilings, right? We as believers start with Jesus as the first cause of all of creation. And I'll pit Jesus against the Big Bang. I'll pit Jesus against evolution, uh, spontaneous regeneration, or spontaneous, yeah, spontaneous, 
that they get around this by saying it just all just suddenly appeared. Everything that we understand about our universe, <coughs> excuse me, the first cause of that is Christ. It's Jesus. That's the beginning. If you want to understand our universe, <coughs> excuse me, if you want to understand our universe, our creation, how everything works, what's your starting point? The Hubble telescope? No, the starting point is Jesus. That's the starting point. In Him, all things were created. <coughs> Excuse me. By means of Him, He was the first cause. He's the explanation. He's the unifying knowledge of all that exists. Then it says, it's through Him. Here we have agency. Verse 16. Through Him, all things were created. Uh, that, that, that as we look at Genesis 1 and as we look at these things in day one and day two and day three, who is creating all these things? Jesus was. He was the agent through him, talks about and, 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 and explains agency. And notice what he lists here. In him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. What does he mean by Invisible things created. How can you create something that's invisible? We, we, we equate beingness with some kind of physicality. The scriptures don't. A body is not necessary for a being to exist. In fact, the Bible teaches that those believers who die before Christ comes are, are instantly in the presence of Jesus, but what do they not have? Their bodies. They don't have their bodies yet. When do they get their bodies? That's what we call the resurrection. Resurrection is not them rising from the dead. It's a reunification between your spirit and your body, your resurrected body. You can exist. We, in fact, will exist if we die before Christ comes as real people, real conscious existence in in the presence of Christ. A body's not necessary for you to exist. Now, the body's important because he, he raises it. But there are other spiritual beings the Bible talks about. What are some of the other spiritual beings that don't have bodies that the Bible talks about that we can't see? To name some of them. Angels. Demons. Uh, there's a phrase in the Old Testament called the sons of God. Um, these were spirit beings that, that God created. They were created by God. They, they were part of his... Divine counsel, um, what, what's, what the Old Testament talks about, his divine counsel. There's all kinds of spiritualities that we can't see that are invisible. And Paul simply wants to make sure that you understand that just because you can't see them, he, is, he reigns over them, too. Now, now again, uh, people, make, people make a lot of hay out of these, these phrases, um, uh, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. And there may be something to that effect. <coughs> Boy, I don't know what's wrong. In Ephesians, we see many of these same words when talking about spiritual warfare. I don't think he's trying, in this context, I don't think he's trying to make a, 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 a precise uh, description of, of spiritualities. I think he's just trying to be all-encompassing. You know, heaven and earth, visible, invisible. We call these spectrum texts. He's, he's trying to say it from, it'd be like us saying from A to Z. The highest to the lowest. 
he's saying there is nothing that exists that was not created through him or by him. And then finally, <coughs> excuse me, all things were created, verse 17, for him. Creation, all of creation was created for him. Now, what, 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 in what sense do you think it, they, uh, it was created for him? For his pleasure, for his glory and his honor. <coughs> it was created for him, to bring him honor, to bring him glory, for his uses, for his purposes. I can't tell you how many people that, I, that I've heard talk about this world is Satan's world. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, turn to Psalm 24. Keep your mark here too. If you would, I invite you. I'm not commanding you to. I, I invite you to turn to Psalm 24. That sounded... Psalm 24. What does the Bible say? Psalm 24.1. The earth is Satan's. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. This is His world. This is His creation. Anything Satan does is only by permission. This is His world. Look at Psalm 50, verse 12. This creation is Jesus. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. This is God speaking. For the world and its fullness are mine. The creation was created by Him, but it was also created for Him. He owns it. He's the owner. He's the owner-occupant of our physical universe. It's all His from first to last. And, and by, all, by our physical eyes, it seems like Satan is running amok and, 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 and things are, are going to Gehenna in a, hell, in a hand basket. I almost said hell basket. See, I, Jasmine, I was trying not to say it. They're not. This is his world. This is not Satan's world. Satan's on a leash. In fact, the Bible says that he's bound. He's been bound. The strong man has been bound. Why? Because of the cross. Because this is God's world. This is God's creation. And when he will be released for a period of time, it will be only by the permission of the Creator. Uh, so he is preeminent over his physical creation. But verse 17 concludes with this. Back to Colossians. Verse 17. He is before all things. This is, this is priority. He was before all things. Why was he before all things? Because he was the firstborn. He created all things. So he is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. What keeps our universe from just exploding apart? What keeps our, the entire universe being, from being, being held together? Yeah, yes, scientists, they don't know. 
They don't know. They talk about gravity or they talk about mass. What, what, what keeps gravity constant? What keeps mass constant? This goes back to all things were created in him. He's the first cause and he is the sustainer. All that we know and see, even when the, the, the realities we can't see, are being held together and sustained by him. Now, this is contradiction to deism. What's deism? Anybody know what deism is? It's a worldview that says God is like a big watchmaker, a clockmaker. And he made the clock and he wound the clock and now he just lets it run. And he, he is completely uninvolved in his creation. He just kind of lets it go. And he's observing and watching just like you and I are. This, this rules that out. He is moment by moment sustaining all that we see, all that we can't see. He, all things are being sustained by him. All things are being held together by him. He is the one who keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. You might write that down. That's a good one. Keeps the, ca- the cosmos from coming chaos. That is who he is. Uh, number two, though, he is not just preeminent in his physical creation, but he's preeminent over his spiritual creation. Look at me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. We see this word again, firstborn from the dead. And, and this is also a genitive. This is firstborn of the dead. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That in everything he might be preeminent. What does it mean to pre- be preeminent? First, top dog. First place. Is God. Did, you hear, did you hear about the agnostic, dyslexic, insomniac? He laid, it wait, he laid awake every night wondering if there really was a dog. <clears throat> Thank you, David. You're just encouraging me, brother. I got some more coming. He, he says that he is, he, is, uh, he is the head of the body. And then, and then Paul specifies what he means by that, the church. He's preeminent over... His spiritual creation, which is his church. And we understand that the Bible talks about church in two ways. The Bible talks about the church in terms of the universal church. And that is those who comprise, those, all those believers in Jesus Christ around the world comprise what's called the universal church. But the Bible also talks about a local church. And the local church is comprised of both believers and unbelievers. The, 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 Many parables we have of the weeds and the, and, and the plants and the weeds, the wheat and the weeds, uh, wheat and the tares. Uh, these are talking about the local church. But the universal church is, is that group of people, all those people around the world who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So this, I take this church to be, he's talking about the universal church. And the local church, of course. But he is the beginning, he is the head of his spiritual creation, which is his church. And now he says, by virtue of two things. Number one, by virtue of his resurrection. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Was he the first person raised from the dead? No. He, so firstborn, again, is not talking about the first person. Who was the first person raised from the dead? <clears throat> well, let's, okay. 
New Testament. Who is the first person raised from the dead? I think it's Lazarus. That, that, was, that was after Jesus. Was, yeah, was his, the daughter the, the centurion's daughter? I don't know. I just came to mind. Jesus, but Jesus, certainly certainly because of Lazarus, he was not the first one raised from the dead. So in what sense is he firstborn from the dead? His authority over death? That's certainly included. What about, let's take Lazarus. Lazarus certainly was raised from the dead, but what happened to Lazarus eventually? He died again. And this time it, it was for real. For realsies. <laughs> he was, you know, uh, Princess Bride, he was really dead, not partly dead. <laughs> mostly dead, yeah. He wasn't just mostly. No, Jesus is talking about his eternal resurrection. And the Bible says that, that his resurrection was a, was a model for our ultimate resurrection. Yes, there will come a time when we will be raised from the dead simply because because he was the firstborn in priority and permanency because he was because he was resurrected we will be resurrected he, he, he is by virtue of his resurrection paul in first corinthians talks about he was the first fruits of the resurrection and that we will follow so he is preeminent over his church because of his resurrection, but he's also preeminent his church because he is, in fact, fully God. Verse 19. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Anybody know John 1, 1 through 3? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. How can you be both with God and God? Trinity, Trinity, he, he, he is both with God because of the separate, he's a separate, distinct person, but he is God, fully God, because he's same in essence. So John 1.1 1, 1 clearly points us to a Trinity, at least a, what would be a two, at least two gods, yeah. not at least two gods, but two persons in the Godhead. To, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. He, he says, you know, the visible Yahweh and the invisible Yahweh. So, he's fully God. The, the fullness, and, and this is translated in, 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 in a couple different ways, but the idea is that all that God was, Jesus was. Or, all that Jesus was, God was. Let me phrase it this way. All that Jesus is, God is. God the Father is. All that God the Father is, Jesus is. That's his point. And because of that, he is head over his spiritual creation. Now, the question is, what does that mean? I, I, I see churches and faith and, and, and churches, doctrinal, not doctrinal statements, but their, their uh, purpose statements. Jesus is head of this church. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean for Jesus to be head of this church? Um, oftentimes, people really don't know. Uh, I, I think that uh, by, by, by virtue of his... Him being fully God by virtue of his creation of the church, by virtue of his, we're going to see here in his resurrection, he is the ultimate authority. How is his authority expressed and how is his authority determined in the church? 
by his word. When we say Christ is the head of the church, we say the scriptures are our final and ultimate authority. Because when the scriptures speak, Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, the scriptures speak. So it's not, it's not the elders going and searching and saying, oh, Jesus, tell, you, tell us what you want us to do. Now, we do that. But that's really not what it means for Jesus to be head of the church. Jesus is head of the church by virtue of his authority, and he rules his church through his word. So he's preeminent over his spiritual creation by virtue of his resurrection and by virtue of him being fully God. But the last part of our outline is he has. Look at me at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, or this preposition probably has a sense of by, evidenced by. In other words, you were alienated hostile in mind by evidence of your evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above. There's a lot in here. Basically, he's saying that Jesus is preeminent in his church because he has reconciled us. What does it mean to reconcile? Well, let me ask you this. What is implied when you say someone needs to be reconciled? That there's separation, that there is something that's keeping them apart. Right. Yeah, there, there, was, there, there was something that was between us and God. That, that reconciliation had to take place. And we call that sin. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but the Bible talks about reconciliation in three different ways. Just the Bible talks about salvation in three different ways. You, you, the Bible talks about salvation in terms of when that we have been saved. We see passages that, says, that, that say we will be saved. And there are passages that talk about we are being saved. Well, now, what is it? There's three different aspects of salvation. Just the Bible talks about in Corinthians five talks about three different aspects of reconciliation. The Bible says that Christ's death on the cross reconciled the world to Jesus. Past tense, completed action. In what sense has God reconciled the entire world? Do you understand? You can be reconciled to God and not saved. The cross. The cross reconciled the entire world. Corinthians says that he is in the process of reconciling the world to himself. And then Paul says, we have been reconciled. There is a sense in which the entire world has been reconciled to God. Before the cross, God's stance towards humanity was only judgment. Now it's changed. Now God stands willing to forgive. Before, He wasn't. Why weren't, P, why weren't people being saved in the Old Testament? Do you notice that? Now, there were some, but it was a very small few. Why don't we have, why don't we have accounts of people being saved in the Old Testament? Because God's stance towards them was judgment. But now, because of the cross, His position, His stance towards humanity, is He now stands ready to forgive. Reconciliation is not salvation because he talks about it in three different ways, just like he talks about salvation in three different ways. There is a sense in which we, that a person, before they come to know Christ, is being reconciled. 
I take that as being drawn to him. And then there is a final and complete reconciliation at the point of belief where we are justified. So he talks about the fact of reconciliation in verse 20. Through him to reconcile all things to himself. He talks about the necessity of reconciliation. You were once alienated and hostile in mind by virtue of the evidence of your evil deeds. Why was reconciliation necessary? Because you were alienated and hostile to him. You say, no, I wasn't. And I would say, yes, you were. This doesn't necessarily mean you were consciously, God, I hate you. But in your nature, you were alienated and hostile to God. That's why there are no good religious people. There are good religious people by our standards. But those who have not yet trusted in Christ, their position, they are alienated and hostile to God. But God has reconciled them and He stands ready to forgive them. We see the result of reconciliation. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh in order to, in order to here's the purpose, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, this is who you are. You're holy, blameless, and above reproach. You go, boy, uh, you, you haven't seen me at my house. You haven't seen me outside the four church walls. Now, he's talking about our position. When God looks at us, he sees us. Imagine this. He sees you. If you've trusted in Christ, he sees you as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is our position. Not necessarily our practice. We're growing in our practice towards that. And ultimately, we'll not achieve that until glorification. God sees, uh, say he sees you in, in all of your mess, in all of your sin, as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Is that my opinion? No, I, if, if you look down at your Bible, you see that. He has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What does verse 33 start with, though? The evidence of reconciliation. Yes, well, how does verse 23 start? Look at it. If... Now, this if can be one of two things. It could be a condition. Notice he might, say, he might be saying, now, you will be holy, blameless, and beyond reproach if and only if you do what? You continue in the faith. So you've got to be continuing your faith in order to earn holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's not what this is saying. This is, this is a conditional clause that indicates that 23 is not, in other words, 23 is not a condition for verse 22. Verse 23 is evidence of verse 22. He's saying, in other words, you can know verse 22 is true in your life if you continue in the faith. What is the one, what's the one enduring, <clears throat> we're going to see this in 1 John, what's the one ultimate evidence that someone was saved? If they persevere to the end. If on their deathbed they still profess and name Christ as their Savior. That's the ultimate one. Because we see in 1 John there were some who did that, but they were departing from the church. They were apostatizing. They were, they were antichrists. 
they were denying the deity of Christ, or they were denying the not the deity, they were denying the humanity of Christ. He, so he's saying that this claim to being holy and blameless and beyond reproach is not a condition, or staying in the faith is not a condition for that. It's evidence that that's really true. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And then he says, which I have proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which is quite a statement. We're going to talk about that next week. And of which I, Paul, became a minister, and this is the launching point for the rest of the text. What are we saying? In Christ, we see God who is creator and redeemer. He is the one who is supreme in, in all of creation. Uh, you know, modern day scientists, they, they, they continue their search. They're continually searching for the, the, you know, the holy grail of science. <clears throat> the holy grail of science. The, the, this theory of everything. The, this, this unifying theory of how do we explain the unity that we see in creation. The, 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 they're looking for this set of laws that explain the complex detail, the, 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 the dilemma of the one and the many. The, the, how do we explain both the unity that we see in creation, but the diversity also that we see in creation? This theory, that this one overarching theory is what they're searching for, the one and the many. Little do they know that Christ is the theory of everything. He is the key that unlocks. He's the key that explains. He is the one that brings meaning and purpose to this vast universe. And any attempt to explain this universe apart from Christ is empty and vain. We need to make clear to a culture that relies on technology, that relies on economic prosperity, that relies on human ingenuity, that Jesus Christ is the center, the origin, and the destiny of the created universe. Number two, He is supreme in the church. He is the head of the church. And this is mediated through His Word. It is not mediated through pastors. It is not mediated through elders. That is another kind of church his authority, his priority, his preeminence in the church is mediated through his word. And pastors and elders have authority only insofar as they are submitted to the authority of the word. It's not what I think. I don't have any inherent authority in this church. The only one who has ultimate authority in this church is Christ through his word. That's why the scriptures tell you how to spend your money, not me. That's why the Scriptures tell you how to live, not me. That's why the Scriptures tell you how to dress, not me. The ultimate authority in the church is Christ. He is firstborn of the body, the church. And that authority, His firstborn nature, is mediated through His Word. Not through any human beings. So who is Jesus? Who do you say that He is? He is preeminent in all of physical creation. He is preeminent in all of spiritual creation, His church. That He is both Creator and Redeemer. And that through His name and His name alone, one might be saved. There is no name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved.
That's Jesus. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a philosopher. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who died for us. Who not only dies for us, but lives to intercede for us and who is always with us. And it's in that name we pray. In the name of Jesus. And everyone said...